I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanandan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. Sugi, I'm going to start off today by asking you a really loaded question. Really? What? How are you doing? And don't say I'm fine. (laughs) That is a loaded question. (laughs) I uh, used to say I was pandemic fine. Um, and now I guess I'm developing new language for my situation. Uh, maybe I'm Minneapolis fine. I will take suggestions. Um, how are you? I think I said last week when we were, I mean, two weeks ago when we were recording, uh, the podcast and we're going to talk some about the circumstances of that later in the interview, that it was like the worst week that I remember in my lifetime in American history. And I do, I do feel that way, uh, still, um, you know, on, on the other hand, I am encouraged by the fact that these protests that have happened all over the country, starting in your city, but also happening in my city, are starting to get results that I hope will be lasting. Yeah, I mean, it's been very sad here, but it's also been amazingly transformative and to see kind of the spirit and resilience of the community around me, um, even as I think, you know, we mourn the murder of someone who died a mile and a half from my house. Um, it's been... It's been a unique vantage point for sure. Things are, and uh, I mean, I don't mind to sit here and say optimistic things, right? I, I think we have the, uh, you know, the worst president ever in the world, and there's reasons why these protests have also seemed to be aimed at him in certain ways, and I think that's important. They feel like pro-democracy protests, but also protests against police brutality and 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 black lives and for Black Lives Mattering. Um, for instance, one of the things that changed in Kansas City is a parks commissioner named Chris Good, who I spoke to just the other day, uh, recommended that this park where our protests were happening, J.C. Nichols, around J.C. Nichols Fountain, uh, be have its name changed because J.C. Nichols was a real, white real estate developer who I wrote about in a novel that we've actually discussed on the show, you know, who used racial covenants to segregate the city. And finally, that idea of changing the name of that street has been able to come into the public consciousness, you know, 15 years later after writing that book. And, and that seems important. Those are those kind of changes matter. It does seem like uh, there's a move to ask people to make real change rather than making vague promises. And some organizations and individuals are taking concrete actions in that direction. I couldn't imagine doing this episode on anything but the protests following the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. And now more recently, we're we're recording this on a Sunday, so we know also that Richard Brooks uh, was killed in Atlanta on Friday night, and the ongoing nationwide reckoning with racism. Later in the show, we will talk to poet and essayist Jabari Asim about how the media and literature portray the police. But first... We're going to be joined by Sugi's University of Minnesota colleague, Terion Williamson, 
to talk about the view from Minneapolis. Tarion is an associate professor of African-American and African studies with a joint appointment in American studies. Her research and teaching specializations include Black feminist theory, 20th and 21st century African-American literature, Black cultural studies, media studies, and racialized gender violence. She's also the author of Scandalize My Name, Black Feminist Practice in the Making of Black Social Life, and she's the director of the Black Midwest Initiative. She's also editor of the forthcoming anthology, Black in the Middle, an anthology of the Black Midwest. Tarion, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I really appreciate your being with us today. You and I both live in Minneapolis, and we know its neighborhoods, and as my co-host keeps explaining to me, he does not. Um, I live in South Minneapolis, which is where George Floyd was killed, about a mile and a half from my house at the intersection of 38th and Chicago. But you live in North Minneapolis, which was, uh, as far as I can tell, one of the areas most affected by the protests and things around it. So can you just describe your neighborhood a little bit for us, uh, for our listeners who don't know Minneapolis and for me who doesn't live there? So the way, so this will tell you something about North Minneapolis. When I was looking to move here in 2016, I bought a house when I moved here. I have family members um, who are uh, my father's age and my father's cousins who live here. And when I said I was looking to buy a house and I was looking in North Minneapolis, my cousin said, oh, you don't want to do that. All they do is shoot and kill in North Minneapolis. So I was like, oh, I guess that's probably where I should move because that must be where my people are. Right. Like that told me something about what was happening in North Minneapolis. Turns out it's not true that all they do is shoot and kill in North Minneapolis, but it is the case that it's. Um, an under-resourced working class community of a sort that I'm really familiar with. About 50% of the population um, is Black or African American. And, you know, many of my neighbors are people of color and many of them are not. You know, the neighbors on both sides of me and in the front and behind me are all white. So it's a diverse neighborhood that has had its struggles, as have many such neighborhoods. So, Sugi, what's the difference between North Minneapolis and and some other neighborhoods? You've mentioned to me like South Minneapolis, where you live. Sure. Um, So I, when I moved to Minneapolis, uh, moved to Uptown in part because I moved in great haste. And I moved essentially to an apartment building that another professor who had gone to high school with me had lived in. And so rather than searching for a place, I was like, Sarah lived here. It must be fine. Bingo. And um, as I moved there, also realized that I had sort of made a choice between living in an, an area that I felt like would give me as a person who had moved to Minneapolis without a car, um, an easy commute um, by public transportation. And so I felt like I had picked between living with other people of color in a really more diverse neighborhood um, and living with good public transportation. So I lived in a very gentrified neighborhood. And, and I then I moved to a slightly less gentrified neighborhood. Um, I live in sort of the west part of South Minneapolis. And um, my neighborhood is mostly white. I'm one of the very few people of color on my block. And sort of as you go eastward in South Minneapolis towards Powderhorn Park, it becomes more diverse. Buying a house in Minneapolis was comparatively... It was cheaper than other cities when I moved here. And those prices have been going up and up and up. Um so, you know, and George, where George Floyd was killed um, at 38th in Chicago is east of, east of where I live. One of the things about North Minneapolis, too, is that it doesn't have the resources that other places have, right? So in terms of grocery stores, in terms of um, other kinds of, in terms of like restaurants and that sort of thing. So I'm a driver, so I don't have difficulty here. But if I was not a driver, it would be definitely more difficult here than in other parts of the cities to get, you know, essentials to get to a grocery store. So there's a, um, you know, there are certain parts of North that are on the verge of, if not already, are food deserts or on the verge of being food deserts. Um, I go to St. Louis Park because it's close enough to me, like to go to the movie theater. There are more restaurants there, for instance. It's, you know, an inner ring suburb that has um, a lot more amenities than North has, for for instance. I do also remember, Sugi, the last time we were recording this podcast, you had to reschedule because, and you were nervous when I talked to you, you know, uh, you felt like there were some, there were white supremacists in your neighborhood and you were concerned about what was happening. This was, that was the evening of May 30th. 
I wondered if both you and Tarion could talk about your experiences during those early intense days of the protests. Like, what were you doing? What did you see? How did you feel? Tarion, where were you, where were you when the protests were starting off? I mean, I was here, um, and it's it's the the bizarre thing about it is you're watching what's happening around you on television. Um, you know that became one of the ways of trying to keep track of what was happening, but it was also quite confusing because it took a while before I realized that there were, that there was um, protests that were happening here in, in North because everything, so much of the media, so much of the coverage was focused on Lake street and South Minneapolis. And so, um, Maybe that Friday or Saturday after that night, I went out just sort of driving around the neighborhood and I saw that the gas station right around the corner from me had been burned down. And I I hadn't seen it. I hadn't smelled it. I hadn't heard it. And so during most of the the sort of most intense part, those sort of early days, I, you know, I was here at home and trying to make sense of it as it was happening and it was and it's still been difficult even now to really get a real sense of what was happening when and how um particularly from from following from following cable news and trying to follow more alternative outlets it still has been a little tricky trying to figure out exactly what's been what's been happening until I get, you know, get out, you know, get out of my car and start driving around and I sort of start seeing the evidence of what's been happening, you know. I mean, that's quite remarkable. I have not, uh, there were, there were protests here in Kansas City also, but I have never seen a gas station burn down in my neighborhood. I mean, that would be, I'm sure that was, what did you feel like when you're like, oh my God. Yeah, it was just, I just came up to the corner. Really, I could walk there and be there and I don't know, four or five minutes, right? It's pretty close to me. And it was it was alarming, right? Um, especially because I had no clue, right? I didn't smell it or hear it or, or anything. Um, and so it was a lot. And that's when I first started getting a sense that, okay, things are also happening here in North. And then this is where, you know, the, the rumor mill has been churning. It's because part of the sort of question was about like we haven't had the on the street um sort of demonstrations of the sort that have been happening sort of near cup foods right where the where the murder took place so it's like why what's happening up here that that this is happening and so some of those rumors about who was doing the 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 burning for instance are circulating and it's still sort of hard to hard to get a handle on it here. Yeah, it was it was pretty weird. It's, I mean, it's curiously disembodied for some people, right? Like the distinction between you know because of the pandemic, so many people were in their houses, or because of you know curfew, or because of fear of whatever. People who were in their houses had these curiously disembodied experiences of the protest. From like you know, I was basically glued to Unicorn Riot for five hours a night. Um, between Tuesday and Saturday when I more or less had to... Wait, glued to what? I don't know what that is. Okay, so Unicorn Riot is um, a nonprofit um, alternative media outlet. Basically, people on the ground at the protests running cameras, they were doing sort of man-on-the-street interviews. They were very close to some of the fires that were burning. So often I would see a fire on Unicorn Riot before... Um, it was reported in any sort of news. It's, um, you know, like left-leaning media activists who have been running this nonprofit, which I think started in maybe 2013. And I think they just felt that mainstream media coverage of this sort of activism and also the violence attendant around it and the way that police were responding was not being covered. And so on Unicorn Riot, for example, um, in the protests, this mysterious figure emerged, Umbrella Man. Umbrella Man was responsible for breaking windows and and sort of beginning some of the uh, quote-unquote heavy quotes, looting and, and arson activity at an auto zone, which was one of the first places to kind of go. And so Umbrella Man became this like mythic figure in the discussion of the protest because he was carrying an umbrella, he was wearing a mask, he was white, um, and a lot of people thought he was an undercover cop or something who had been sent out as um, as like an agent of chaos. And so this was the sort of, right, like the sort of imagery and rhetoric and myth that was already building around it. And so, um, 
know, I live in South Minneapolis. Um, I haven't talked that much about this in part because I feel like I don't want actually a, a, a narrative of white supremacy to overtake what I feel like are the very important, primarily important actions of the protesters. Um, but I do live in a neighborhood where there was white supremacist activity. I'm one of the few people of color. I also have, um, some family history of arson related things. And so I think was like after my several days of having watched unicorn ride until the dawn and having slept about two hours, um, was not primed to like necessarily like stick it out in my house. Um, and there were reports also of things like, and Terry and I, I, it seems like it was different in North, but around here it was like. You know, there were, for example, reports of things like you should search your bushes for bottles of gasoline. And then people living not super far from me did find those things, um, you know, abandoned vehicles, plateless vehicles, um, a real uptick in trucks, SUVs, motorcycles, um, plateless, plateless vehicles and people who seemed to be gathering around paper maps um, per what some of my neighbors said and sort of planning things. And I think you know, one of my most trusted neighbors, who's a, another person of color, sort of said to me, they were using our neighborhood as a staging ground, which was really confusing. We wanted to talk a little bit about the media here. Um, you know, Sugi, you live, told me that you live and your partner has shopped at Cup Foods, which is the store that called the police on George Floyd. Um, uh, you've both been around, you know, you, you were talking about the weirdness of seeing this as part of you know, this being in the in the media while you're living it. Right. So what was that like? And what do you think the national media uh, got wrong or right about the way they uh, portrayed the protests here? So I think what's right is that there is the palpable sense of rage um, that is clearly being articulated, I think, is is right. The. um, what I have struggled with, and this, you know, one of the things that a lot of media will do, like media loves a burning building, right? Loves a burning building, a burning car, something, a glass broken into. Um, and so, you know, I was getting, filling a number of it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline you know, emails and um, texts and phone calls from people who care about me, you know, concerned that the building, like that the city was, you know, burning to the ground, um, like wholesale, right? And there were plenty of things that were happening. There are plenty of ways in which people were gathering together and demonstrating and rallying and supporting each other that had nothing to do with any of that. So for instance, the first night, um, that Tuesday night, when I think was that first demonstration, that Tuesday night after George Floyd was killed, I went to a demonstration right over there at Cup Foods, all right, and never felt unsafe for a moment, all right. Um, it was my first time being out after, you know, a couple of months of being inside as a consequence of the pandemic and being with folks, and it really felt like like the rage was clearly there. But it was also it was also a space in which people were committed to making something happen, committed to seeing some kind of change, committed to advocating on behalf of George Floyd and other people who have been victims of police brutality in a way that felt like a coming together of a community and a space that was really generative and productive and and meaningful in a real way that I don't think often enough gets captured in, particularly in mainstream media. Yeah, I think um, I don't watch much cable television. Um, I was a print journalist and I think my loyalty to print is pretty strong. And so I think one thing I, I was actually re- impressed with some of the national media coverage by print reporters, and it, it was almost always reporters of color who I assume 
and hope in this environment were being given greater latitude to pitch um, and write the stories that they cared about. And so, for example, the New York Times ran a story about a restaurant that, you know, my friends all love, Gandhi Mahal, which is a Bangladeshi run restaurant where the owner was, you know, just amazingly supportive of the protesters. And he's a community fixture who is a long, you know, fed activists, for example, um, who is, I think, you know, someone. And so, so to see the national media recognize that narrative as well was really, um, I appreciated that. And I, I think that I hope that that's something that continues. I had one really interesting experience with this, with the Kansas City protest, which is that I attended, I mean, I attended several. One, one, uh, was they were both the like I'm going to talk about two protests. They they both felt like basically like I was at a high school basketball game. Like there were kids running around. There were all people of all ages. It was totally mellow. Um, I left with my son at like around six thirty or seven. At eight o'clock, which was a technically the curfew, the police shot tear gas behind the crowd, and then the thing completely exploded into violence. Right, so. Then later, a week later, our mayor, Quentin Lucas, who I know and is African-American, I think he had a conversation with the police. Like the police were doing a bad job. They were they were lining up in front of the protesters rather than like being dispersed through the crowds. So they were creating an, a, a, a confrontational aspect to what was happening and then shooting tear gas, right? Which had not happened here in Kansas City since 1968 when Martin Luther King uh, was killed. Um and then, but a week later, when the police were dispersed through the crowd and they weren't lined up in riot gear in front of the crowd and nobody shot tear gas, it was a non, there to be a nonviolent protest, right? And I'm sure that some of that was happening in Minnesota too. Like police tactics were really bad here for the first week. Yeah, I, you know, and so the demonstration that I went to, so the, the thing about that one was I said we went, um, so it started over near Cup Foods where the murder happened and then a um, marched over to the third precinct. So this was before the precinct got burned down. Um, And by the time, and so we had been there for a couple of hours. And so by the time I got back home, got back up to to where I live here in North, I had started seeing the reports of, of, of chemical agents being used and rubber bullets. So it changed just that quickly. So, um, and I should say like, the thing is that the news reported all of the breaking of windows and the burning of a cop car, but, but like that wasn't what was happening at the protest. And they didn't report that it really was the police that had instigated that violence. Right. That, that's, that was exactly what it felt like to me, you know, at that first, um, demonstration in Minneapolis too. By the time I got home, it had turned into something very different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I, I was having friends, you know, message me asking, how is the tear gas at your place? And I think that was actually the night that I wasn't here. Um, and, but, you know, I had other friends who were reporting like people unable to open their windows, um, like closer to Powderhorn park, for example. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, we saw also attacks on the press that were really unprecedented. And, uh, you know, someone I went to college with, um, Molly Hennessy Fisk of the LA Times, you know, posted this searing video of talking about, um, like, sort of the logistics of having been shot by tear gas at extremely close range. And watching that also, um, I think the press was so astonished that the police would do that. And so here, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, right? Like, I think in some cities, this the city government and the police are aligned, and that is not the case here. Um, because there's some really interesting power dynamics. I want to go back for a second. You're talking a little bit about um, kind of the community responses to the protest. And some of those really astonishing responses have been in the form of art. There's the George Floyd Memorial at um, 38th in Chicago. That square is kind of blocked off. And there's a a huge number of really beautiful um, tributes to him and statements in support of these protests that are there. One of them is um, a list of names of people who have been lost to police brutality and racism. And it's, it's not an exhaustive list and it's still extremely long and you can see it. It's was done so that I think a helicopter would be able to see it basically. Um, and I think, you know, there are all these names and then there are also all of the ones that aren't there. And, and so you recently published, um, in belt magazine, a piece about, a piece examining the life and death of someone who grew up where you grew up and who died in Minneapolis. And I was wondering if you would read a little bit of that piece for us. So the essay is called Remembering David Cornelius Smith. David Smith is a young man who was 28 years old. He was from my hometown of Peoria, Illinois, and he had 
ended up in the Twin Cities um, because he had come um, here for Job Corps. And so he was here for um, roughly 10 years or so. Um, after Job Corps, he stayed in the city and ended up being murdered here by the Minneapolis Police Department. I didn't know about this story until after the George Floyd killing happened. Someone who I had been good friends with actually when I was in grade school and high school had posted about um, her brother's death. David turned out to be her brother. Her name was Angela and she had posted something about his death. And that is how I first heard the story of David Cornelius Smith. We ended up talking and working um, together to tell the story of David. And that is what this piece is um, that I'm going to read a portion from now. I know Peoria Southside intimately as it is where I also grew up. And though I now live in North Minneapolis, it is the place I continue to call home. It is also where Angela and I met and became good friends while students at Treewind Middle School. I never got to know David personally, in part because Angela and I largely lost touch after she graduated from high school a year early. But when she told me David felt that he had to leave Peoria, I recognized the feeling from my own young adulthood. I left Peoria for college in Chicago shortly after I graduated from high school. But to be clear, David's leave taking was never meant to be an act of abandonment. He wanted to improve his financial circumstances so that he could eventually return home and help take care of his family. Like so many young and idealistic black men before him, he dreamed of buying his mother a house and moving her out of the hood. And so he moved to Minnesota. David applied to Job Corps and after being accepted into the Twin Cities program, picked up at the age of 17 and moved north. He spent three years in Job Corps and decided to remain in the area upon graduation because he was convinced there were still more opportunities for him there. He moved into his own apartment, had a long-term girlfriend, and enrolled at Minnesota Community and Technical College, where he took classes in business and political science. He also developed a relationship with a mentor at Penumbra Theater, who helped him engage his love of acting, and he even tried his hand at modeling because, as Angela put it, people told him he was cute. According to Angela, David believed that a person could become anything they wanted in the Twin Cities, and he and he regularly tried to convince her that she should move there as well. Still, David began to struggle. What the family understood to be major depression was eventually diagnosed as bipolar disorder. The diagnosis remains controversial for David's family, some of whom were concerned that racial bias, not uncommon in the mental health profession, and David's lack of access to appropriate resources might have contributed to a misdiagnosis. Yet whatever their misgivings, David's family helped to get him the care he needed, which included getting on a regular diet and exercise regimen to help better manage his symptoms. That regimen is the reason he was in the downtown Minneapolis YMCA on the afternoon of September 9, 2010. According to most media accounts of the incident, the Minneapolis Police Department was summoned because David, who is typically described in these accounts as being, quote, mentally ill, or potentially under the influence of drugs or alcohol, was disturbing patrons in and around the sixth floor gym. It is not entirely clear what the exact behavior was that was supposedly disturbing patrons. Most accounts of the incident offer up vague assessments that David was, quote, acting bizarrely or being, quote, disruptive, while one account suggests that he was walking around shirtless and mumbling, that he threw a basketball into a kickball class, and that he, quote, scared a 13-year-old boy. According to Angela's understanding of the incident, the only disturbing behavior committed by David was that he was talking to himself while shooting jump shots in the gym. In any event, MPD officers Timothy Gorman and Timothy Callahan arrived and attempted to subdue David and remove him from the facility. As far as Angela knows, no one from the YMCA had approached David prior to calling the police, and given that he was a paid member of the club, he resisted the officers' attempts to make him leave. In the ensuing struggle, the officers used a taser on David multiple times, knocking him to the floor. They turned him face down and Gorman pressed his knees into David's back while Callahan restrained the bottom portion of his body using a tactic known as prone restraint, which restricts a person's ability to take in oxygen. The two officers held David down for more than four minutes, and when they finally released him, he was no longer breathing. 
Though paramedics eventually restarted his heart via CPR, David never regained consciousness. He remained in a coma until, be until being taken off of life support approximately a week later. David Cornelius Smith was declared dead on September 17, 2010. He was 28 years old. Thank you for reading that. Um, I'm sure it was extremely difficult to write, and I'm sure that it has been... It's just very difficult to imagine how his family must have felt when they heard about George Floyd's death, especially since, you know, when you read what happened to him, the, the restraint, the asphyxiation, you know, these are all things that have been, that like, it's repeated. This thing is happening over and over and over again. Um, it's later in the essay, you talk about how it was part of the settlement around his death that the, that the Minneapolis Police Department would have training on restraints. That does not seem to have happened or there's no evidence that it did. So what is going on with the Minneapolis Police Department? Right. So that that ends up being of critical importance for the family. Right. So um, so nothing happened to the police, the two police officers who were involved. They were put on administrative leave for a short period of time. Less than a month later, they were they were back on their jobs. There was no um, there. There was no sort of criminal indictment. And so the family sued um, city of Minneapolis and decided ultimately to enter into the settlement in part, in large part, because one of the things that they were told would happen was that the there would be retraining around restraint tactics by the by MPD. That was very important for them because they thought, well, if there's anything we can do, because I, I guess the question was put to them, is it about change happening or is it about the money? And they were like, it's about change. We don't want anyone else to ever have to go through this. So it was vital to them that they were told that there was going to be all of this retraining that was going to happen around restraint tactics in the M MPD. So one of the things I mentioned later on in the article is that in a recent interview, Lewis Brown, who was one of the younger siblings of David, says, you know, my brother's death was supposed to save Mr. Floyd's life. And so when the video surfaced of what happened to Mr. Floyd and they had to watch that, it was really, as you might imagine, very triggering for them and devastating for them. Um on a bunch of levels, just because, you know, what happened with their loved one is always sort of front of mind for them. But in, but the, the video, the circulation of the video, the particular form of restraint, all was very familiar for them. And it seems like going back to what I was saying before about the city and the police, um, the police and the city have been very much at odds. You know, for example, the mayor tried to ban warrior style training for the MPD and via the police union, the police received that training anyway. So attempts to kind of rein them in um, have really been resisted by the union. And also here, in, and wait, I remember we were talking about this and you said in Kansas City, it's not the same. Like a lot of these police officers don't live in Minneapolis. Um, so they're not accountable to the community in the way that they might be if they were actually part of it, um, which also seems connected to this like bla flagrant flouting of this promise. Right. And I, I think it's also what this case in particular also reveals is how the MPD, like most police departments, is, are, are not able to deal with, um, are particularly unable to deal with mental illness, um, with health crises, um, people who they see as potentially under the influence. All of that stuff is contested in this case, including the diagnosis around um um, the mental health diagnosis of David Smith, but whatever the ultimate diagnosis was, it, th they understood him to be in some form of a crisis. And clearly there's no ability to, to deal with that. And I think part of what it means to call for the abolishment of the police or to defund the police is to resource though, to take those resources and put them elsewhere. Um, where they can be better activated by folks who know how to deal with people who are in potentially in one crisis or another. 
Okay. So, you know, Tarion, as you were, we were just talking about, um, you know, defunding the police, dismantling the police department, the city council has voted to dismantle it and, and has written a resolution to replace it with what they're calling a community led public safety system. And we're expected to vote on a referendum in November. I was wondering what you think about that and the idea of that model as a replacement or, or evolution for safety and security in the community and, and where we're, where we're headed from here. Yeah, you know, it's a little hard to know where we're headed. What I see happening is that there's going to be a lot of conversation about um, sort of the difference between defunding the police and abolishing the police and and what it's going to mean to try to have those conversations in collaboration with each other. If you look, Miriam Kaba put out, um, has an opinion piece in the New York Times that came out a few days ago, which is like, yes. And she says, yes, we literally mean abolish the police. And just reading the sort of comment sections in the kind of instant sort of instantaneous rebuttal to that, I think is revealing of the way um, just as a whole, in many instances, a wholesale rejection of that idea. And so I think that tells us something about the nature of the, the contestation that is to come around how to move forward. Tarion, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about your experiences. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And now we're pleased to welcome Jabari Asim to the show. Jabari has served as the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, the NAACP's flagship journal of politics, culture, and ideas, and as an editor at the Washington Post, where he wrote a syndicated column on politics, popular culture, and social issues. His writing has appeared in Essence, Salon, the LA Times, The Village Voice, The Hungry Mind Review, Emerge, and elsewhere. He's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in Creative Arts and is the author of six books for adults and nine books for children. His most recent works are We Can't Breathe, A Child's Introduction to African American History, Brother Nat, and the new poetry collection Stop and Frisk. Welcome, Jabari. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Your 2018 book of essays, We Can't Breathe, seems totally prescient about the moment we're in now after the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and, and Ahmaud Arbery. We've been talking to Terry on Williamson about Minneapolis, a city that will now go down in history as a center of police violence. You're from St. Louis. Why are these protests centered in Midwestern communities like Ferguson and Minneapolis and not, say, L.A.? Is that happenstance or is something else going on? Yeah, I think it's less a a function of being in places where uh, police departments are especially punitive, but being in situations where frustrations have been building up over time and have simply reached a boiling point. So for Minneapolis, uh, for example, you had Jamar Clark unarmed, killed by police. Then you had Philando Castile, who was legally carrying and killed by police. And finally, George Floyd. So it was the straw that broke the camel's back. In Ferguson, uh, just outside of St. Louis, it was a combination of abusive policing and policing for profit uh, in which um, towns like Ferguson mismanage uh, through municipal mismanagement, uh, rely on uh, punishing citizens to make up for uh, budget deficits. So you have, for example, you can get ticketed there for jaywalking on a street where there is no sidewalk. Uh, and then insult was added to injury there uh, when Mike Brown's body uh, was left in the street for so many hours and his mother and other loved ones being forbidden to approach him. Uh, you know, it, was, it became a, a powder keg as, as frustrations built up. And in those situations, whether they're Midwestern or, or Northeastern or Mid-Atlantic or wherever they may be, um, those are going to lead to explosive moments as, as we're seeing now in Minneapolis. So in the prologue to your essays, you write, and I'm quoting here, along with brutality, torture, and murder, a principal step in oppression American style has long involved getting between the oppressed and their stories. There's a lot of directions we could go with that quote, but I wanted to start maybe actually with the show Cops, which ran for more than 30 years on American TV until it was canceled just this month. Well, uh, full, full disclosure, I should say, I've never seen an episode of, of Cops, although I'm very aware of of what it was about, but I have seen many episodes, say, of of NYPD Blue or the various manifestations of of law and order. So I am very aware of the the consistent uh, and profitable tendency to portray police officers as heroic beings and the the people of color whom they uh, police uh, 
and police should be in quotes, are uh, portrayed in a, in a very villainous and stereotypical manner. Um, and I probably should connect that to the very popular form of programming that preceded police procedurals, and those were Westerns, in which um, you know, the, the sheriff or the marshal played the part of the contemporary police officer, and the, the villains who were regularly apprehended and punished were uh, the indigenous people of the United States. So it's a, it's a formula uh, in terms of getting between pe- oppressed people in their stories and distorting those stories. It's, it's, its origin uh, can't be found in the relationship between white people and black people in North America, but goes back even farther uh, before the arrival of black people in British North America in 1619. So it's a long tradition of distortion, uh, co-optation, and stereotyping. You know, I, I, uh, Sugi and I both studied with uh, James McPherson, who's a great writer who was a professor at, at Iowa. He was, a, he was actually very interested in Westerns, and I, I totally agree with your point about the way that they're connected to, to cop shows. Um, the thing that's interesting is that they don't have to be done that way. Um, I watched The Magnificent Seven the other night, which is based on Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai. And it's a story about guys who are outlaws who actually the first thing they do in the in the movie is is shoot is stop a, a band of sort of proto KKK guys who are refusing to allow a Native American to be buried in the in the local cemetery. So those narratives don't have to be done that way, but yet they are and have been repeatedly so much that they feel like they've sort of like consumed and prepped audiences to accept the kinds of brutalities that we're now starting to talk about. Yeah, and also, I mean, we, we should remind ourselves that, that the television industry is, you know, it's a capitalist enterprise, and they are going to continue to produce what sells and, and what enables them to attract sponsorship. So content is almost secondary. Uh, but if, if they have happened upon a formula that works and appeals to the vast majority of Americans who, who are not of color, uh, they're going to continue to do it. And not only that, but I think about there's a huge podcast industry that's about true crime stories, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people just are fascinated by them. The listeners to those stories are largely white. And those podcasts, to me, have a secondary sort of s- sense of like the key person who's always the testifier in a show like Dateline, which is the sort of TV version of those podcasts, is always the cop, is always the voice of authority, the investigator, the truth finder. Those stories never, in, I, it's hard for me to imagine and, or remember or think of stories that are about like, oh, here's a story about a cop who did something wrong to a citizen who was of color and then was allowed back on the force, as we're finding out happens all the time, right? And as, and as activists know, happens all the time. I think listeners who are listening to our program, I want them to be thinking about the way that they're consuming media and that there's a complicity in the way that you can consume media as a white media consumer. Yeah, and also we, of course, you know, there's the consumption, but there's the production of it as well. And so we always have to turn a critical gaze toward the people who are producing these stories. Um, and, you know, they, they tend to be the same type of people. Uh, writers who write for television, movies, et cetera, have been, writers of color, have been campaigning for years for inclusion to integrate those writers' rooms and maybe challenge some of those really one-dimensional uh, and limited conceptions of of people of color. Sometimes you need other people in the room. I mean, there are people who are not of color who are capable, uh, who have demonstrated themselves capable of creating dimension, multi-layered, complex and unpredictable uh, characters of color. Uh, But they're in the minority. Um, And so uh, it's an inevitable conclusion that we need other people in the room uh, with access to those stories and access to tell stories. So you write... um and I'm quoting here again, racism and its accompanying cruelties have shaped me to police myself, which is so interesting. Sort of most, as Whitney's just saying, most ni- nice white liberals would never admit to watching cops, uh, much less supporting racism. Um, but they will binge on, you know, we're talking about podcasts, but also prestige cop shows like The Shield or CSI Miami or CSI New Orleans or CSI, like, or sorry, is it, is it, no, it's NCIS that has all of the different cities, but, or Hill Street Booze, which all of these forms of policing, regulation, control. I don't understand why this is so glamorous. Not to mention the legions of true crime TV shows like Dateline, The First 40, and Homicide Hunter. Oh my God, this is like, it's like, it's like, what a horrible genre, like all of which are devoted to burnishing this image of the good cop. Um, As we're talking, I can't help but think of, you know, like 
the the counters to this like you know Sidney Poitier played a cowboy um, a few times you know or there's you know like uh, Easy Rollins who's like a classic classic character in pursuit of um, truth but also a very complex character and but the narratives that I mentioned first like those are the ones that you're referring to when you talk about you as a black man policing yourself am I right Yeah well yeah and then also um, you know I'm not necessarily talking as much about uh, television narratives that that influence us I think it's a little disingenuous to blame uh, so much of this on on media portrayals uh, especially where you know our liberal friends are concerned um, I think these are societal customs and I think it's the weight of societal customs that shapes our behavior as much as these televised portrayals uh, it's you know I, I'm, I'm not the only person to have written about and spoken about uh, the amount of energy that I have devoted to making white people comfortable in spaces um, and I think that the the tradition and the social custom is heavy enough and long enough that for argument's sake, I think you could say that even if those television shows did not exist, these behaviors would continue to manifest because they've been shaped over time. I mean, they predate television. Um, you know, as long as black people have been been in the, in the, the land we now call the United States, uh, people have been led to believe uh, that, you know, we, we're to... We're to, we're to be monitored and that we are to proceed with caution. And although, you know, we resist uh, these attempts to shape us, they undoubtedly influence us. I think it's, I, I guess I sort of think of these narratives as a, like a retroactive justification or they help people to tell themselves the stories that make it okay for them to keep the societal customs that you're referring to, right? You know, it seems like a way that, you know, like when you go through some sort of event and, and you're attempting to understand it and to absolve yourself in some way, like you tell yourself the story in that manner yeah, and then you're off the hook. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. We have this impulse to, to rationalize our misbehavior, even though on some level, you know, we're, we're aware that it is, it is unjust. So we use these narratives to to support uh, our impulses towards certain kinds of behavior. Yeah, we're, we're trying to find reasons to justify um, why we, you know, both malignantly and, and benignly participate in this sustained uh, narrative of, of injustice and, and unequal treatment. And you're, of course, totally right that, that television shows are not what is making this happen. The reason that we're asking you about narratives is that's kind of our little, our niche as a, as a podcast is to talk about you know the uh, you know the news through the lens of literature you know and through the and how so how past literature and how past even tv which we could consider literature you know affects the news so the other narrative that we wanted to ask you about that you write about in your essay collection you call it the patroller complex um i was thinking about it connected it up in my mind with this sort of a narrative device that occurs in literature and in tv of the vigilante you know um and in that essay, Shooting Negroes, you're writing about George Zimmerman killing Trayvon Martin, but you might just as well be writing about the men who shot Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and I wondered if you could read to us a section from that essay, and maybe we could talk about it when you're done. Sure. Okay. When black people first set foot in the territory, now known as the United States, they stepped onto contested ground. Before there was a legal term for what they were, before the law carefully circumscribed their hearts and loins, each of their footfalls was subject to contention. How many strides until the end of their world? How far could their limbs take them? To the edge of the plantation? To the back door of the big house? As far back as the 17th century, long before Trayvon Martin took his last steps in a gated community in Sanford, Florida, his ancestors confronted similar boundaries. Gated neighborhoods? Try gated states. By the 1860s, several of them, including Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, and Oregon, prohibited black people from traveling anywhere without proof of permission. Your name? George. What's going on there, George? I'm with the Neighborhood Watch, and we've had some burglaries and vandalisms lately. And this gentleman was walking in the neighborhood, and I've seen him before on trash days, going around picking up trash. I don't know what his deal is. Is he white, black, or Hispanic? Black. Wherever such laws or customs prevailed, bands of dutiful citizens took on the task of enforcing them. Slave patrols, 
the forerunners of police cruisers and neighborhood watch squads, first emerged in South Carolina around 1704. The patrols were based on earlier efforts in Barbados, where the Act for the Better Ordering and Governing of Negroes empowered all whites with the right to stop and investigate black people who, left to their own devices, were considered likely to steal or run away. In the view of patrollers, Negroes were as dishonorable as thieves. Consequently, they were to be apprehended and punished for moving or walking about without permission. In modern terms, patrollers were expected to be on the lookout for black people who were, quote, up to no good. 19th century black people wrestled with the dilemma in which everything Negroes did was wrong, according to W.B. Du Bois. If they cowered on the plantations, they loved slavery, he observed. If they ran away, they were lazy loafers. When everything they did was wrong, even something as innocuous as breathing could be cause for harassment or death. As Trayvon Martin discovered, 21st century racial maladies often pose the same trap. This guy looks like he's up to no good, or he's on drugs or something. It's raining and he's just walking around, looking about. George Zimmerman reported during his 9-11 call on February 26, 2012, moments before he gunned Martin down in cold blood. Zimmerman's easeful assumption of authority is both significant and historically resonant, but no more so than the notion that a black man simply walking in his own neighborhood, no less, is automatically suspect. Zimmerman's eagerness to take matters into his own hands reflects an implicit mandate that white citizens are as responsible for their safety as police officers are. Inheritors of a patroller complex deriving from those early acts for the better ordering of Negroes, they are, in effect, deputized to investigate any persons, read black people, who seem out of place. When law enforcement officials speak to civilian groups, they seldom hesitate to reinforce this understanding. Following a highly publicized murder in Washington, D.C. in July 2006, Andy Solberg, then acting commander of the city's 2nd District, instructed a group of Georgetown residents to report anything suspicious, such as, say, the presence of African Americans. This is not a racial thing to say that black people are unusual in Georgetown, he said. This is a fact of life. Thank you. I mean, that assertion, this is a fact of life, is actually, to me, it's, a, it's an assertion of a narrative. Like, we are allowed to tell this story. And, 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 and it's so powerful to me the way that you outline the way that story has developed over centuries, even in that short passage that you're, that you're reading. I think of Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry or, or Charles Bronson or Rambo or Liam Neeson's Taken movies. That idea of the vigilante seems to come right out of this power dynamic that you're describing in this essay. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the state, uh, you know, as, as far back as the 1700s, empowers not just people who carry a badge, but just, uh, you know, white people in general to interrogate, investigate people who, who they feel don't belong. I mean, that's that's part of uh, Amy Cooper's response in, in Central Park to Christian Cooper uh, when she threatened to call the police on him and say, you know, a black man was, was making her fear for her life. You know, it doesn't take much imagination to, to draw a line between her behavior and this behavior we're seeing in the 1740s. It really is an unbroken line. And in that one, the thing that was so shocking about that video is, uh, well, not shocking, the thing that was remarkable was that she started acting like she was playing a role, like she knew the role, right? She, she changed her voice. She began to act this narrative out for the cops as though she were doing a school play. Right, right. Uh, and just, you know, upping the ante uh, in terms of the possibility of Christian Cooper being violently subdued uh, because you know, she was so terror stricken uh, or, or at least pretended to be. Um, as a D.C. native, I, or I guess a Maryland native and a native of the DMV, as we call it, um, I can't help but think about, you know, what I know about Georgetown and its history and how fraught the history of race in that particular neighborhood is. Like, there still isn't a metro stop there. Um, right. Like, and this is all part of like a plan specifically to keep African-Americans out of that neighborhood. And so to kind of hear it framed in the terms that 
you know, that are in your essay and in the way that um, white people are talking about Georgetown or even the way that I used to feel um, walking through Georgetown, which is inaccessible in ways that other parts of D.C. are not. Um, anyway, just brings all of that history back. Yeah. And it's uh, I mean, the other thing about I mean, I guess there are many things you could say about Georgetown, but it's also the home of Georgetown University, which, as we all know, refinanced through the sale of enslaved human beings. And prior to that, it was actually a black community. And recently, uh, black bodies have been found uh, buried underground in those very elite, exclusive white neighborhoods. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complex uh, history, to say the least. So, but when we're talking about vigilantes, you know, in recent narratives, um, and I have hugely enjoyed watching these. There are black vigilantes. There's Denzel Washington and the Equalizer. There's Django Unchained, made by a white director, so maybe still a fantasy. And then there's my personal favorite, like The Watchmen on HBO, which draws connections between masked superheroes and the Klan, but has black vigilantes. Um, how have you thought about these narratives? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the Denzel Washington Equalizer, I mean, we have to say that it's, it's basically a reworking of the television show. Uh, the Equalizer that was popular in the 1980s and featured a British actor named Edward Woodard. Um, so it's uh, it's not an original black vigilante story. It's mm, let's take this white story and redo it with a, a black star. Um, I've never seen Django Unchained. I'm, I can't say that I have any impulse to see it uh, be because uh, Tarantino. Uh, I won't say any <laughs> more on that. Uh, but it's definitely not a black film, uh, and, it's, and it's not black characters created by by black people. It's, it's another example of uh, narrative manipulation, however you want to look at it. Um, and it kind of points to a larger issue. I mean, if we, if we look at black uh, sleuths, shall we say, uh, both uh, on both sides of the badge, the most popular ones are, are characters like John Shaft, uh, which was created by Ernest Tidyman, a white writer. Uh, there's Alex Cross, who was created by James Patterson, a white writer. Uh, and those tend those tend to be the narratives that are perpetuated. Whereas, you know, the for me, the most compelling writers in that tradition who are really looking at this from a genuine and informed uh, African American perspective are people like Chester Himes and Barbara Barbara Neely, Grace Edwards, Attica Locke, uh, Nichelle Tramble, Walter Mosley. I mean, there's this whole other tradition, and some of these writers are what, are what we call black famous as opposed to white famous. They are. <laughs> They're respected and revered by black black readers, uh, but some of them are are unknown uh, outside of their their communities, which is you know a, a, a it's it's not a tragedy, but it's 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 an unhappy uh, phenomenon. Um, and so I'm, I'm much more interested in the way those writers uh, shape these stories of black people uh, pursuing justice. The Watchmen is a, is a little different, I would say, because uh, Damon Lindelof, the showrunner actually had black writers in the room. Uh, he set out to, to create an integrated writer's room and also um, solicited, you know, really constructive input from his performers like, like Regina King. So it comes a lot closer to uh, a community-shaped characterization of, of black people and black, uh, black vigilantes as well. And I'm hopeful uh, that we'll see more of that kind of storytelling in the future. Um, I'd have to agree with you that it's, it, it was compelling television and um, maybe, maybe a sign of things to come. I hope so. And I should yeah. say, I mean, I'm no particular fan of Tarantino either. I think yeah. it's, it's Watchmen really that, um, I mean, as someone living in Minneapolis, there was definitely a moment when I was kind of like, am I in Watchmen? Like what is happening right now? <laughs> yes. Yes. I love what you're saying, Jabari, about these writers who have been ignored and, and who wrote in, in that, in that sort of genre. And I, I, I'm interested and I just want to talk a little bit longer because I have a friend, uh, named Kevin Wilmot, who, who wrote the screenplay for Black Klansman along with Spike Lee. And, um, you know, that's a cop movie, right? But it's written by, by a black writer and, and, and a black director. I wonder what, is it possible to do cop narratives that don't reinforce this sort of trope that we've been discussing during the show that, that are actually useful? Uh, I, th I, th I think it is possible, right? I mean, I, I have infinite faith in a storyteller's capacity to imagine stories. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say, I mean, even in, in one of my, well, in a couple of my own uh, books of fiction, you know, I, I have a black detective uh, named Grimes who works on, on, apparently works on both sides of the law. He does some things that 
Um, you know, people in the community don't appreciate and even fear, but he's also quietly doing some other things as well. So he's sort of policing the police from the inside, and he's not necessarily a good guy, uh, but he's a genuine guy and that he's, he's complex and, and unpredictable and, and given the situation may respond one way or another. Um, and I was influenced uh, to some degree by some of the writers that I've already uh, named. So, yeah, I, I think it is possible. You know, uh, I just think that writers have to have the the opportunity to to share the results of their imaginations with the rest of us. Um, I was going to say some of what some of what you're saying is also making me think of we had an episode where we had um, Matt Johnson on the show and you know some in one of his recent books um you know there's a character who's investigating racism and in that way kind of assumes um or tries tries on that mantle of um i don't know inverting the the idea of how authority works in a way that i thought was really interesting and i we also want to talk about your poetry collection stop and frisk which is coming out the day after this podcast drops and you write in all forms and genres nonfiction, fiction children's literature you're just it's ex- agile and impressive and cool and you've been a book critic when did you start writing poetry well you know it's 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 interesting all of my early publications are poetry so i was doing poetry i I first was published in 1988 uh in black american literature forum which is now called african-american review uh and and then uh secession of literary magazines Uh, and i'll tell you what happened around the time that i was published in black american literature forum my payment for it was two contributors copies and i was thrilled uh, but but around the <laughs> but around the same time, I sold a newspaper article for which I was paid the princely sum of thirty five dollars. Uh, again, this is nineteen eighty eight. So I'm I'm like hmm thirty five dollars <laughs> versus contributors. Copies. That is totally hmm. how it went for me. <laughs> Journalism, it's the filthy lucre. Yeah, come, yeah. Keep you coming back yeah. every time. I, I was a, I was a, I was a young dad. I had two two children by then, and I was like, I have to feed these kids, right? So um, so it's not that I abandoned poetry. It's just that I, I shifted a lot of my energy. Toward journalism because uh, I needed the the salary and the the, the medical and, and dental um, and so you know recently I've had poetry in the Baffler American Poetry Review so I, I still do it but not not to the extent that I did it back then. So we've been talking a lot about media narratives involving the police and vigilantes so far in this discussion, but you have a really interesting poem that's partly about the interaction between the police and a young black man, but also about an internal narrative. I was wondering if you could read check the manual for us. Sure. With a knee in his back and a heel on his head, he remembers Officer Friendly. The first grade visit from the precinct's community outreach ambassador was his first face-to-face with a cop. Until then, he'd known them only as a pair of bullies who terrorized his neighborhood, sending the big boys scrambling at the sight of their cruiser. Of all the kids he could have chosen to help with his presentation, the officer, black and smiling, singled him out. In front of the class, including his secret loves, Linda and Lori, he laughed shyly and presented his wrists for cuffing. While Officer Friendly read him his rights, he risked his bookish reserve for a taste of swagger. It went down smooth as Kool-Aid, put fire in his bones. Was Linda grinning? Did Lori sigh and shift in her seat? Behaving as a bad guy was cool and contagious. Now he sees it was just practice, dress rehearsal as the iron bites his wrists, a hundred hammers pummeling him into the pavement. Last week in the barber shop, old heads and young talked of prisons and pipelines, of shaping souls from birth for shackles and cells. His mama raised no fools, but it was still too big for belief. Simply talk, conspiracy theory, urban legend, a joke of deaf comedy proportions. How did Richard Pryor put it? Can you break a nigger? Is it okay? Let's check the manual. Yep, page eight. He'd laugh if not for the loose teeth, the gravel in his throat. Oh, thank you. It's a great poem. Thank you. The last thing that I wanted to ask about in that is the image of the cuffs, which uh, appears in the poetry, but also appears in the essay collection, and you talk about, I'm going to forget his name, I think his last name is maybe Ball, as a slave owner who is like related to George Washington, who's writing about the proper way to use shackles. And this way that there's this connection that you draw in the essays 
from the shackles of slaves all the way up to the cuffs of the police and that imagery. I wondered if you could talk about the way that you've been thinking about that in your work. Yeah, I mean, so one one of the things about that particular poem is, is that it's one of the very few poems uh, in the collection that has any autobiographical element at all. They're mostly dramatic monologues, persona poems. Uh, but in the first grade, uh, I was singled out by Officer Friendly to be to be the the, the kid who gets cuffed, uh, and so I was cuffed. But I was six, you know. So it was, and so I've, I've kind of looked at the way. Uh, that experience has has traveled through time as I have traveled through time, and I guess the I guess the the signal moment for me was going to the the Smithsonian Museum for African American History and Culture and seeing a pair of rusted slave manacles, um, and you know, sort of in my mind, um, it took very little effort in terms of my imagination to see them as a pair of cuffs uh, dangling from the belt of a of a modern uh, policeman, um, and so this idea of iron and and shackles and, and captivity, and really the theft of the body um, is something that continues to, to resonate in my work. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Jabari. We encourage our listeners to go out and pick up We Can't Breathe and also Stop and Frisk being published as of the publication of this podcast tomorrow, and to visit your website to check out all of your excellent books. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman, and we want to thank our University of Minnesota intern, Dylan Mietinen, for his work on this episode. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at LitHub's virtual book channel and at our own newly launched Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading and protesting.